that, that was me, sorry. That, uh, well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see all of you. Uh, today, we are going to be reading from the book of Genesis, just two verses at the beginning of chapter two. So, people of God, hear the word of God. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Now, over the last few months, if you've been here with us, you'll know that we've been considering together our callings and vocations, both as individuals and as a corporate body. And over the next four weeks, we're going to shift that prism just a little bit and consider how those callings and vocations work out in our jobs, in our workplaces. And this is very important for us as Americans living in the 21st century, because if I could sum up our cultural attitude towards work, it would be this. Leisure is good. Work, bad. Right? (laughs) Um, It's probably more complex than that, as everything is. Um, But I don't think it's a bad simplification. That sounds about right, yes. Uh, Based on the number of books that are published, the promise to help us work less and work fewer hours, travel more, enjoy ourselves, it's clear that we see that the hours that we spend working, that those are something that we must reduce because they hinder the true aim of our lives, namely leisure or pleasure or fun or however you want to say it. If anything, we think of work as kind of like a necessary evil, something that must be done in order to pay our bills, keep our economy humming and stable. But given the choice, we would do far less of it than we currently do. And what I'd like to say is this. What a terrible way to view an endeavor to which we are required to give a large portion of our lives to. Is this me? Do I need to adjust up here? Kevin, no, we good? Okay, all right, all right, we we jamming. It's It's a new microphone, working it out. Anyway, large portions of our lives given to this endeavor, right? Every week has 168 hours. If you sleep eight hours a night, that means you've got 112 hours of waking time. If you work 40 to 50 hours a week, that's roughly half of all of your waking hours. And when you lay your head into the grave one day, what a tragedy it will be to have spent half your life toiling in a necessary evil to have given so much of your life to tasks that kept you from the true purpose of your life, namely leisure. But that is not what the Bible teaches us about work. The labor to which we give ourselves day after day after day is not something that distracts us from pleasing God, but rather one of the primary arenas in which we find ourselves pleasing God. And in order to understand this, we need to break this teaching into three sections. Number one, we need to understand that we are made for work. Number two, we're going to look at the character of our work. And then number three, we're going to see that Jesus Christ makes our work beautiful in God's sight, no matter what the work is. So number one, we are made for work. Now, any biblical teaching on work begins not with our work, but with God's work. So let's go back to the verses I read in the beginning. Genesis 1, excuse me, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 2. Thus, 
The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God had finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. The very first thing that we, confr- that we are confronted with when we open our Bibles is this. God is a worker. Genesis opens with an account of God's work, namely to create all that exists with words of power. It is the words of God that hold everything together. What holds up the stony foundations of the mountains? What causes the impeded stream to sing? What causes the northern lights to dance in the sky? Beneath it all, if you listen close enough, it's the words of God. This was God's work. So then we come to our verses in chapter 2. And this passage is traditionally interpreted as the justification for the Sabbath day. And it definitely is. God rested from his work, and so must we. But twice in this work, the writer emphasizes, and this is what I want to emphasize, twice in this verse, he emphasizes God worked. And we see furthermore that God took pleasure in his work. It, it delighted him to do it. After each stage of his creation, he pronounces the benediction, it is good, it is good. And then he finishes with, it is very good. And so even here we see that the Bible's understanding of work is already diametrically opposed to our culture's view of work. The Lord, God Almighty himself, maker of heaven and earth, was a worker and he took pleasure in his work. Not in order to hasten the time until he got to his leisure, but because the work was good. You see that? Now, when God creates human beings, we see that he creates them in his image. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, the meaning of that verse is very complex, very nuanced, uh, and, but at its very foundation, <clears throat> the simplest understanding of it is this, that human beings are made in the image of God, and they are like God in some way. They, are, they resemble in some way. They are representative of God in some way, like no other creature in the entire created order is. Now, perhaps you've never noticed this before, but if we start by affirming that God is a worker, which hopefully I've already established, then the next step is that humanity is made in God's image, and therefore somehow like him, then what do you think is the first thing we're going to see humanity doing in Genesis? They're going to be working. Look, you don't have to take my word for it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man for the, to, excuse me, there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then <clears throat> the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So let's pause for a second. God creates, God creates this human being, this man, and this man is made in his image. And the very first explanation, first thing we see 
of what God intends for this man, and then later the woman, is in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The purpose for which God created this man was to be like God, namely, to work. Work is not a result of the fall when sin entered the narrative in chapter 3. Work is what humans, listen to this, work is what humans were made for in paradise. What? Like, that's astonishing. Now, to be sure, sin does enter the story in chapter 3, and that changes our relationship with work. We'll get there in a minute. But presumably, had sin never entered into the garden, work would have always been productive. Like, the harvest would never fail. The sale would never fall through. Education would always move from one success to the next. But sin did, did introduce toil and strain and some measure of futility to our work. That's absolutely true, but it does not change the fact that the resounding message of the first two chapters of our Bibles is this. Work is good. Work is the endeavor for which we are made. So every morning when you wake up, you go into that office, you go into that store, you go into that home, you begin your long hours of toil, remember this. This is the task for which you were made and it is pleasing in God's sight. Now, before we get to the next points, let me just take the story all the way to its conclusion. So we need, we've seen the beginning of the story. We need to look at the middle and the end of the story. So uh, with regards to work. So in case you haven't noticed, we do not live in paradise. Yes, <laughs> that, is, that much is true. Work is hard, and yet God is no less pleased by our toil. That, that pleasure that God has in work is transferred into the midst of a fallen generation. And if I had to choose one passage, only one passage to prove this, I'd go to Proverbs 31. And if you've read your Bibles or you've grown up in the church, you're thinking, what? Isn't that, isn't that the passage that tells women how to live and be and, you know, what is it? No. Well, okay, I mean, I think it's a very simplistic reading of that passage, by the way. Um, we tend to think that Proverbs has no internal coherence. Remember, Proverbs is a book of wisdom, and, and Solomon addresses these Proverbs to his son. And so it's very easy to be reading through and say, like, ah, this doesn't, none of this fits together, but there is an overarching narrative to it. It's not just a junk drawer of wise sayings that don't relate to one another or tell a story. Um, and if you take the book as a whole, then I would say that the primary message, if you understand how the narrative works and how it, uh, it reaches its crescendo in Proverbs chapter 31, you're basically seeing this. Solomon is telling his son, to whom it's addressed, that the summit of wisdom is this. Find a good wife. Mm. That's what I'm talking Yes, yes, amen. Now, um, now clearly, I mean, he's, he's addressing his son here, so he's talking about a good wife. Yeah, yeah, find a good husband too, but that, that's not the point. The point is, here in Proverbs, Solomon is addressing his son, and, the, and he's trying to build him into a wise and discerning and judicious man, and he says, the height of that, if you want to be the wisest man you possibly could be, find a good wife. That's the primary meaning. But the secondary meaning it's very close to the primary meaning. 
The woman's wisdom in Proverbs 31 is made evident by her work. Look at this, starting in verse 13. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. Look at what this woman is doing. She's working. She's providing food for her children. She's involved in real estate deals. She provides merchandise, which is profitable. And so what we see here is that even after the fall, when toil and futility is introduced into our work, the work of this woman's hands is praised. The character of these verses, if you've ever read them, is positively doxological. We're praising this woman. Look at the way she works. It's not her beauty which is praised. It's not her charm. It is her work. Her wisdom is evident in her work. And Solomon, God in, God's inspired author, praises the work of her hands. So to me, this is a perfect encapsulation of the middle of the story. There's lots of other places we could talk about in the Scripture that talk about work, but this is the middle of the story. Still, after the fall, work is still pleasing to God. But then let's move to the end of the story. The Bible teaches us that one day history will come to a close. The Lord Jesus will return in glory. The clouds shall part, and he will establish his everlasting kingdom upon the earth. And the paradise that we lost by sin will be a paradise regained in that day. And so how will we spend our days in that new earth, in that remade earth? Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us in chapter 65, he says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. This is the Lord speaking. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. They, my people, shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Okay, now, I hope you heard that. In, in paradise regained, in the resurrection, in the everlasting kingdom of God, we shall work, we shall build houses, we shall plant vineyards, and we shall enjoy the work of our hands. In the glory of perfection, we shall not experience endless leisure. But we're going to be working and that's good. Why? Because God is a worker, and he has made us in his image. And he takes delight in that work. And so shall we delight and enjoy and take pleasure in the work of our hands. Okay, so we are made for work. Number two, let's talk about the character of our work? How is it shaped? What do we do? Since we've established that work is good and that it belongs to all of us who are made in the image of God, let's try to figure out the character of our work. And for this, we need to return to the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So, the earth is dark, it's without form, void, it's, it's a void. In other words, there was darkness, there was chaos, nothing was ordered, and then God spoke, let there be light. Let there be animals to roam the lands. Let there be fish to swim in the sea. Let the birds soar through the airs. Let the firmament separate the sky and the land. And God established patterns of day and night and seasons and years. So another way of saying this is that in God's creative work, he brought order out of chaos. And we see him giving the exact same work to human beings. God brings order out of the chaos of the darkness and the void. And then he tells human beings to do the same thing. Remember what we already read from Genesis 2. Before God created the first man, before there was any human beings, according to Genesis 2, God plants a garden in Eden. You remember this? Now, what is a garden? A garden is a place of order and cultivation. Suppose you buy a piece of land that has never been touched and has just simply grown by the dictates of nature. So trees are scattered everywhere. Thorns and thistles grow without any concern for anything, without anything to hold them back. Grass is choked out by the canopy of the forest and wildflowers grow randomly in a sunny meadow. Now, beautiful as all this is, I agree, but as beautiful as all this is, it will not feed a family. In order to do so, it must be cultivated. It must be ordered in order to do that. Some order must be brought into this chaos. And so perhaps you, find, you, you clear one of the fields. You, you take its trees out. You cut back the brambles. You plow the soil into neat rows so that the land will produce its food in season in order to feed your family. That's how I want you to imagine the world in the days of Eden. The entire earth was disordered. The entire earth was wild, but in one place, God brought order to that chaos and planted a garden. You follow? Okay, so there's one cultivated place on all the earth. The rest of the earth is wild and uncultivated. And there he put the man and the woman in the garden. And what was their vocation? According to Genesis chapter one, verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He tells them, fill the earth, which presumably means populate the earth and then subdue it. Now, this idea of subduing the earth is often recklessly interpre interpreted to mean that the earth is ours, it belongs to us, we get to do whatever we want with it, but that's not what it means. When you understand that in the beginning of Genesis, there was only one cultivated place on the entire earth, namely the Garden of Eden, and that the rest of the earth was disordered, then that vocation takes on fresh meaning. God is telling them to start with the one cultivated place on earth and then extend the borders of that cultivation, extend the borders of that garden 
until the entire earth is filled with it. Go into the wild, he says, and bring it into order. And that vocation has not been revoked by the fall. Cultivation remains the character of our work. We go out into the world and subdue chaos and bring order, just like God, in whose image we are made, worked in the beginning. So that means when a teacher shows up to her classroom, she encounters the chaos of unformed minds. And yes, yes, there's a chuckle. I heard it. It's true. <laughs> Truer than, I, than I'm even saying. Um, but step by step, she cultivates those minds and brings order to them through education. That means when a plumber shows up to my house, he takes the disorder, the chaos of a leaky pipe, and brings it back into order. That means when a CEO arrives to her office, she sees an organization that every day is trending towards chaos, but through leadership brings it back into order. That means when a mother remains home to raise her children, she perceives, talk about chaos, she perceives the chaos of life without her and cultivates to, uh, and works to cultivate her children's lives and home. And she very much brings order into that chaos. When a politician is doing his job properly, he is fighting against the chaos that threatens his constituency and instead subdues that disorder by cultivating peace and justice. Are you following me? I could go on and on, but the character of our work is the same. No matter who we are, no matter what kind of work we do, we who are made in the image of God do the work that God does. Namely, we strive to bring order out of chaos. We cultivate that which is disordered. But we've got to go one step further because Genesis says something even more astonishing about our particular kind of work, about the kind of work that we do and the character of it. When God places this man in the garden, he does so with a very specific purpose. Now, just listen to this. Okay, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Okay, you're not erupting with applause. I, assume, I guess I have to explain this now. To work it and to keep it. Now, those, not, those words may not mean much to you, but if you read the commentaries written by folks who have given their lives, their entire lives, to the study of the Hebrew language in the Old Testament, they will tell you that this pair of words, work and keep, are used quite often in the Old Testament. And in every place, every other place where they occur, they describe the work that priests do, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple. So to work and to keep, that's the work of priests everywhere else in the Old Testament. So if I were to ask you, okay, so what did priests do in the Old Testament? You'd probably say, well, they, they prayed and they facilitated worship for the congregation of Israel and they presided over the sacrifices, and that's true. That, 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 that's exactly what they did. But when the Old Testament writers wanted to sum up all of that work, they said the priests work and keep the temple. So in that way, God was bestowing. Do you see this? In this way, God was bestowing a priestly vocation upon Adam. 
Not only was he to bring order out of chaos and bring the world under cultivation, but he was to do it as a priest, bearing the presence of God to the world as he had his hands in the dirt. And the same is true of us. As we go about cultivating the earth, subduing it, bringing order out of chaos through our vocations, we bring the presence of God to bear upon the earth. We're going to talk a lot more about this in a couple of weeks, but for now, just understand that this is what we do. We do the work of priests. We bring the presence of God to bear upon the the earth. Now, I happen to earn my living by making videos for high school students who are studying for their uh, AP exams <clears throat> in history. And on many occasions, they have left me comments that say some version of this. Oh, you're doing God's work. <laughs> you know what? They're right. They're absolutely right. Now, I happen to believe that they are not, in fact, making a theological statement here. But instead, they're just trying to say that the work that I've done is helpful to them. That's fine. But they are saying more than they know. In this case, yes, I make these videos, and yes, my aim is to bring order into the chaos of their minds, but more than that, I do so in the image of God, and it is His presence that I bring to this task. And the same is true of you. Any place that you go to work, no matter what the context, you bring the presence of God to bear in this place, in this world, as you cultivate this world, as you bring order out of chaos. Okay, number three. Jesus Christ makes our work beautiful in God's sight. At this point, maybe you're feeling inspired. I I certainly was as I was putting this together. You might, you're going to work tomorrow, and and maybe this is like, oh, yeah, I needed, oh, this is good. It truly is God's work. But as I've alluded to several times, there is another reality that contends against this work that we are given, namely the fall, and that happens in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve choose to believe the serpent instead of God, a great shattering of the cosmic order occurs, and those who were made in God's image were cast out of the garden, the place of God's cultivation and order, and out of his presence. And for our purposes, there's many implications to that, but for our purposes, one of the most significant consequences of that ejection was how it would affect our work. In Genesis 3, verse 17, God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." So as the result of the fall, our work, which is still cultivation, will now be done in pain and toil, and we can expect no small amount of futility as we go about our tasks. In other words, simply by pursuing our vocation, we shall necessarily fail it as much as we succeed in it. And this futility, like, it causes us pain, causes us anguish. 
And it is precisely these thorns and thistles which have tempted us to believe that we were not made for work, but rather for leisure. And that work is bad. And that leisure is good. And if you've worked more than five minutes in your life, you know what I mean. Sometimes you get home and <laughs> instead of you think back over your day, instead of bringing order to chaos, the wild vines have crept past the boundaries of your hard-earned cultivation and have reclaimed some of the land. Instead of using your life and your work to bring order, it feels like chaos has been the theme of your day. But here's where I tell you that even our failures are beautiful in God's sight. When Jesus Christ came, we're taught by the Apostle Paul, he was the true image of God. And as such, he said in the Gospel of John, if you remember, my father is working, and I too am working. We're also taught that Jesus was the true priest of God, bringing the presence of God to bear fully upon the earth. And because he took up the vocation of dying for our sins and offering himself for our everlasting forgiveness, those who believe in him, he takes our, even our failures and offers them to God. And anything that Christ offers to the Father is beautiful in his sight. So tomorrow, as you go to work, whatever that work may be, whatever it is, Go knowing that that is what you were made for. And even if the failures overwhelm the successes, you have no occasion to worry. Your work is beautiful in God's sight because you have been remade into the image of Jesus Christ. And it is he that works through you so that at the end of the day, what you have cultivated, whether it's filled with vines and thorns and thistles or whether there is perfect order and beauty, God looks at it through the prism of Jesus Christ and says, it is good. It is good. It is very good. Now, we come to the table as we do each and every week. <clears throat> It's part of our liturgy. The word liturgy literally means the work of the people. And now we come to the table as part of our work. And it is here that we remember in whose image that we are made. It is here that we remember and find the grace to continue the work that God has prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. And we do all of that in order to find strength by remembering through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that affected our forgiveness of sins and thus makes all of our work meaningful. So let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for opening your words to us. We give you thanks for taking our, some of our meager vocations, some of us with grand vocations, whatever the work it is, you take it and you bring it up out of the dirt and you say, this is beautiful. And this is what I have made you for. And so, Father, I pray that as we go back into the fields and, and do our best to cultivate what is in front of us, 
that you would grant us the power of your spirit so that we may take the work of our hands and offer it to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And may you find it beautiful. And we love you and pray this in his name. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters, as you come and eat the body of Christ and drink his cup, he is pleased with you. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.